Our guest tonight, a distinguished visitor who's been with us once before, John Cornwell, is uh, an eminent British historian and literary person. Uh, he is well remembered in this country for his inevitably controversial book of a few years ago, Hitler's Pope. Uh, that's um, a study of the attitudes of Pius XII. Exactly, as yes, the wartime pope. The wartime yeah. pope. Uh, and this new book still harkens back to the Great War, World War II. It is titled Hitler's Scientists, Science, War, and the Devil's Pact. John, I want to open by reading just one sentence from your book, if I can quickly get my hands on it, uh, because I think in a way it sets the whole task of the conversation that will ensue. Can we, you ask, can we, by studying the history of science in Germany in the first half of the last century, draw significant conclusions about the relationship between science and the good society? Going on for another sentence or two. Does doing science make human beings more rational, skeptical, internationalist, objective? And do we expect science to flourish better and the discoveries of scientists to be used more responsibly and ethically under democracies than under dictatorships? That's a fine batch of questions that you lay out at the very beginning. Well, it certainly is. And um, I think that um, what is hovering over those questions is perhaps the greatest, most per pernicious myth within scientific communities in the 20th century, which is that science is essentially value-free, that it is apolitical, that uh, down there among the atoms mm -hmm. and the molecules there is no such thing as ethics or politics. Well, how interesting, because of course you do mention uh, a great German scholar, a sociologist, one of the fathers of modern sociology, um, namely uh, Max Weber, who was the one who most clearly enunciated the view that science is value-free, wertfrei in his terminology. And he, and he had a great point, didn't he? Because in the 1920s, when he enunciated it, that, he was trying to be um, careful about the possibility of science being social science, you know, which he wanted to be more scientific so that it couldn't be hijacked by mm -hmm. ideologies of the left or the right. Uh, and in fact, when one thinks about the pernicious way in which science was mixed with uh, ideology to bring us racial hygiene and eugenics, um, or that extraordinary physicist, Pascual Jordan, who drew an exact equivalence between um, the new quantum physics and National Socialism, so that he could argue that National Socialism wasn't just another ideology, it was a force of nature, just like physics. And so, you know, there, there was a point to that, but of, of course, as we also know uh, scientists, um, as opposed to science, you know, are human beings, and they're human beings first and scientists second. They are very often rather self-seeking human beings and quite capable of self-delusion to serve their careerist purposes. Yes, and isn't that surely because they exist under the most tremendous pressures of dependency? Um, unlike most other disciplines, they need lots and lots of cash. And also and, uh, they need a lot of prestige and a lot of attention. If by the time you've reached the age of 40, you've made no important discovery or written no important paper which gets you frequently cited, you're in trouble. Yes, that's right. And you've got to be first and seen to be first. You've got to be first to be published. 
But of course, the Germans very often were first. What sets the problem of this book, and it's such a fine choice of topic that you've taken, is that really up until the early 1930s, up until the coming of the Nazis, it could have been fairly said that the leading scientific nation in the world was Germany rather than uh, the UK or the United States. Well, that's right. The Nobel Awards begin in 1901, and by uh, 1920, we see that Germany has won um, more than 50% of all the Nobel Awards for science and medicine. It's a prodigious thing when you think of all the other countries which had you know, great scientific traditions, United States, Britain, France, Scandinavia, and there was Germany um, well out in front. And uh, that does need an explanation. And um, that explanation um, surely is not that they're more brainy and um, intelligent, that they have a, a better scientific gene um, than other nations. What was the explanation? Well, I think, and I deal with it in, in my book, I hope, um, I, I couldn't deal with it at great length, but um, Germany took tremendous advantage of uh, its early lead in chemistry. Um, and I think it was driven to succeed in chemistry uh, because it lacked very particularly very expensive dye stuffs which um, Britain controlled from um, India and the Far East. And so it made its own using um, coal tar. Um, but it was very careful to uh, patent its discoveries and uh, to make a great deal of money out of it. And then they plowed a lot of that money back into science, into laboratories, into universities, um, and into other uh, disciplines, mathematics, physics, and so A forth. question suddenly occurs to me. It's a, a quasi-linguistic uh, question of a sort. Uh, is I.G. Farben named for a person, a family, or is it named for, for the, or is the word Farben the German word for color? Uh, yes, that's right. So it's uh, really a, a, it tells you that it's a dye company making dyes. In, in, indeed, yes. I mean, IG the, the, stands for. Um, Gesellschaft would be the G, I guess. I don't know what the I would be. Um, yes, you have me there for the moment. I mean, having but it's traveled the, all day long. But yes, it's the but, color company. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And um, which reinforces the point you were just making. Yes, and um, what an amazing company that became. You know, it was one of the leading multinationals in the world. Um, and um, I think second only to Standard Oil, in fact. And during the war years, it flourished and it consumed a lot of slave labor. Thousands of people died in their factories. It did, yes. They set up shop at Auschwitz. Exactly. And, um, the, um, in fact, uh, um, and that, I, I also deal with that too in the book because it seems such a tragedy that what started out as um, uh, an enterprise you know, that was so uh, well-meaning, well-intended, um, full of brilliance and brilliant scientists, should end up, you know, in, um, you know, the ruins of Auschwitz um, um, and um, um, using, exploiting slave labor and um, to the point of death. It would generally be con agreed, I think, that the single most significant scientific mind of the 20th century was that of Albert Einstein. Yes. Who was, of course, German and Jewish, as were so many of the leading German scientists. Yeah. But physics uh, also was essentially a German enterprise in those days. It wasn't only Einstein. It was a whole 
group of people. Max Planck can be mentioned, Heisenberg, of course, and so many others. Yes, that, that's remarkable, isn't it? Because it's just at the turn of the century in 1900 when Germany made such a wonderful showing at the International Exhibition in Paris, um, outshone all the other exhibits um, and, 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 and the tents and pavilions. And uh, that, too, was the year in which Max Planck um, published his interesting result, and w which led to quantum physics. It was also the year in which David Hilbert, the great mathematician set for the rest of the century all the great problems in mathematics um, and uh, what's tragic isn't it is that everything looked so optimistic and hopeful and going in the right direction for them to be as um, Fritz Stern put mm -hmm. it Germany's century and it failed well and then came the Nazis in 1933 they come to power Hitler is Chancellor of Germany uh, Hindenburg is the president, Hindenburg dies, and they do a kind of internal coup d'etat very quickly. They establish the dictatorship. They throw the Weimar Constitution away, and the Nazi state uh, is up and running. And what that did to science, and how it used science, and what science did to accommodate to, or even to serve Nazism, all of these questions are addressed in this fine new book by John Cornwell, Hitler's Scientist, and we'll plunge directly into that part of the story after we pause for these words. Our guest tonight, John Cornwell, distinguished British author and historian of science, who has just done the new book, Hitler's Scientists, Science, War, and the Devil's Pact. You do a good deal in the book with German science before the coming of the Nazis, but mm. now we focus on the coming of the Nazis. And mm. here they come. Do you recognize this song that we're about to play? Indeed, yes. The Horst Basel Lied, which is the marching song of the Nazis. Yes, indeed. And the words uh, in translation, flag high, ranks closed, the SA, Sturmab title. The SA marches with silent, solid steps. Comrades, shocked by the Red Front in reaction, march in spirit with us in our ranks. The streets free for the brown battalions. The street free for the stormtroopers. Millions full of hope look up at the swastika. German Hockenkreuz. Look up at the swastika. The day breaks for freedom and for bread. Um, there well, was a true enthusiasm that swept Germany. Yes, but um, alas, not for the Jewish civil servants um, who uh, um, were the reason that most scientists were thrown out of Germany because um, they were Jews. Um, the, um, and you say civil servants, most of them were uh, given 
the national university system were government employees officially. That, that's that's right, and um, it goes a long way to explaining um, why um, we were talking about Max Weber earlier and his mm -hmm. idea that science should be value-free and out of politics. But of course, as scientists were also um, civil servants, that was an added reason for them, um, uh, for the great alibi that um, uh, we do nothing, we don't get involved, we acquiesce because we're, we're servants of the state, we're not involved in politics. Um, but um, the, uh, uh, initially, the excuse for ridding Germany of its um, Jewish scientists was, you know, this uh, pretense that they were cleaning up the civil servants. They were getting the civil servants properly. But they had already order. fully elaborated their racialist theory about the Jews as a contaminating presence. These biological metaphors of course, are found yes. as early as Hitler's Mein Kampf, written in 1923-24. That's right, and it's very interesting that um, even where German science um, was um, in some respects fairly um, advanced on other nations, for example, the epidemiology of uh, cancer and smoking, um, Richard Dole, the great epidemiologist in Britain, um, um, went to Germany in the 1930s to uh, attend a conference on epidemiology. And he said he couldn't fault the science in it, but um, in their illustrations, they showed the cancerous cells as um, uh, depicted as tiny pictures of Jews mm. and the um, immune system as stormtroopers going through the body and cleaning up the this cancerous cells. In, in what year? About 1935. So they were yeah. launched, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so... Um, what, what's really extraordinary, I think, about the period of the dismissals is that only two uh, German scientists, um, non-Jewish uh, scientists, protested to the point of resignation out of the thousands, that whole generation. Which, um, which two do you mean? Um, well, actually, I don't have the names at the, off the top of my head, but they weren't significant scientists, mm. but what they did was significant. In but you and I were chatting just before the program <coughs> about one who also sort of protested, tried to put up a little resistance, a non-Jewish and quite significant German scientist whom I knew towards the end of his life, namely Wolfgang Kerler, who was one of the founders of Gestalt Psychology. Yeah. The two other... Uh, uh, gestalt Psychology is focuses on holism, and so the running, punning joke in psychology was that it was founded by a holy trinity. Uh, and it's, uh, it's uh, Kerler, Kafka, and Wertheimer. And both mm. of his other colleagues, Kafka and Wertheimer, were Jewish mm. and pretty quickly get out of the country. But he, Kerler, was the head of the Psychological Institute at the University of Berlin, as I remember. That's right. And he did try to contain things, and he did try to protect his Jewish colleagues, but he sort of made his peace, or half made his peace. You, I learned from your book that at one meeting he uh, gave a Nazi salute at the beginning of the meeting before he gave an address to the students. Yes, and then of course he explained himself to his students um, so that it became a, a gesture of irony. Um, I knew him at Dartmouth College where I was a young mm -hmm. prof assistant professor, or associate professor by, that, by then, and he was in retirement living there in uh, Hanover, near Hanover, New Hampshire, and he had some lab space in our psychology department. And so mm -hmm. uh, 
I had no, some chats with him, dined with him a few times. Well, that's, yes, that's an amazing contact he was into with his the past. Mid or late 80s by then, I think. Yes. I think that um, one can't absolutely condemn um, scientists who remained in Germany because um, most of them had nowhere else to go. Many of them had uh, this idea that they should stay on because they thought that uh, Hitler wouldn't last long and they would keep science going until later. But it's interesting that um, scientists like Lisa Meitner, who shared with Otto Hahn the great discovery of nuclear fission, um, she never forgave herself for staying on in Germany till 1938 when she was forced out um, because she was an Austrian um, when the same racist laws were applied to Austrians. Um, I think that probably the, uh, the greatest omission of those scientists who stayed um, for what they believed to be the right reason was that um, in 1945 and beyond, um, they never showed um, any real um, sense of uh, uh, guilt or um, uh, they, 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 they didn't apologize or, or explain. Um, well, more than that, some of them lent themselves more directly to the Nazi enterprise and began working up Nazi versions of their sciences, didn't they? Yes, I think we've got to make a distinction between those who were simply fellow travelers and uh, people like Leonard and Stark, the great physicists, both of the Nobel Award winners, who um, were extremely positive in pushing a racist um, form of science. Um, but, you know, there's a curious paradox, and um, this is fairly recent in among historians of science, um, people particularly like Mark Walker, who's one of the leading historians of the Nazi mm -hmm. period of, of science in this country, which is that he, he claims that in many ways the fellow traveler, namely the highly placed scientist who took benefits from the regime, um, and yet remained aloof from it, um, probably did, in some cases, more damage and were more dangerous than the card-carrying Nazis because they were such a scandal to the younger generation. In other words, if these fine men who didn't agree with Hitler, who hated Nazism, could nevertheless do deals with it. Um, and that's something I'd like to talk about this evening because it, that's the deep connection with my other book, Hitler's yeah. Pope. Well, let's, let's look at some thing. particular cases. So what... what biographically, so to speak, what people come to mind? Well, perhaps I could s start as a reflection going back to Pius XII when he was Secretary of State mm -hmm. in the Vatican um, in 1933 with sole responsibility for negotiating um, with Hitler. Um, he negotiated the, the famous Reich Concordat, um, the international treaty with Hitler. and. Uh, what that treaty gave the Vatican was greater power over German Catholics. And in exchange, um, he agreed to the um, withdrawal from social and political action on the part of Catholics. Um, he agreed to the demise of the great Catholic Center Party, which was the last democratic party operating in Germany. Um, um, its voluntary liquidation after it had voted for the Enabling Act for Hitler's um, dictatorship. Um, now, the point is this, that um, 
I don't think uh, Eugenio Pacelli, who became Pius XII, was ever a, a lover of Hitler or of the Nazis. But uh, by the, the, the mere fact of um, showing you know, a younger generation and people who were sitting on the fence, those who perhaps would like to have dissented, that deals could be done with this regime, um, that demoralized any possible form of resistance very early well, on. Well, the church was engaged in the game or the practice of what the Germans themselves call realpolitik. Yes. You, you, sort of a Machiavellian estimation of what the real forces are and what the disposition of those forces might be and how you adapt to that and pursue your purposes while trying to placate other forces that could intervene and block you. That's absolutely right. Can when you we really fault the church for that? I mean, all institutions that have survived across time have usually shown some special skill, or their leaders have shown some special skill in realpolitik. Well, I think that in the case of... I, this may not necessarily be, you know, a deep moral accusation that I'm making here. Um, I think that um, what we're really talking about in essence is a period of history in which um, the centralization of power within an institution like the church mm. um, threatened and weakened and demoralized um, the local discretion, you know, the church at its periphery in Germany, um, at, at a time when it made, might have made a difference in um, Hitler, you know, the point at which Hitler was yeah. coming to power. Well, you've got that extra factor, and you wrote about that in uh, your book about Pius XII, and it shows up again, certainly in uh, this book, Hitler Scientist, namely the endemic uh, presence as a sort of a substrate, even before Hitler came to full power, of anti-Semitism as uh, a cultural heritage in German life. That's right. Um, a good example of this, um, it's, a, it's at a sort of rather quiet level, is the great chemist Fritz Haber, who... Um, was um, the discoverer of the, that process by which we fix nitrogen from the air and that created um, abundant nitrogen and also explosives, incidentally. Uh, but um, Harbour um, became a Christian um, when he was around about the age of 25, 26, um, simply because he knew that this was the only way in which he could really succeed sure. as um, as a scientist. So it had been going on for a long time, and it, and it was present in other countries as well. Um, uh, it's interesting, in the early 1920s, after um, the, you know, the second publication of Einstein's um, special theory of relativity, that um, it was... Um, it was denounced by certain other physicists who loathed um, uh, theoretical physics and were trying to push uh, more practical physics. And they could argue that, that this theory was sort of uh, a, an expression of degenerate Jewish consciousness. That, that, that's ex well, it's interesting that in, in, the, in the first exchanges between um, uh, the particular man was Stark and uh, Einstein, that. Um, Einstein very quickly exposed it for what it really was, namely anti-Semitism. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I mean, the tradition for that was sort of 
was deep and expanding and, 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 and growing. What is most painful in the history of science in Germany during the Nazi years is not merely that there are some who look the other way and say, I'll go on with my work and I won't make trouble, I won't make waves, um, and I'll serve the state if the state requires me to do so, but rather that there were many, uh, in some disciplines more than others perhaps, who jumped to provide a new pseudo-scientific rationale for Nazism itself, for its racialism, for its expansionism, for its general aggressive orientation towards all the world. Uh, racial science, Rassenpsychologie, uh, race psychology, and so on. These flourish. And then, of course, you also have, and this traces back to a fellow named Haushofer, of whom you write in this book, you have what they called geopolitics. And all of these are used in a way to nerve Germany up for the great uh, assault upon the rest of Europe, and particularly the march towards the east, and the extermination of the Jews. Yes. Um, yes, I, that, that's the interesting aspect of, of trying to take, as, as I do in the book, um, a whole span of disciplines, and not most of the books about this period concentrate on physics and ultimately mm -hmm. on the Nazi atom bomb, or they discuss Werner von Braun and, and his rockets. And I we'll, mean, of be, course and we'll be doing that, that tonight yeah, as well. We will do that. But the, the thing is that um, as you look through the span of all the, the disciplines, um, you find that there is um, the position of acquiescence, simply being victims of the regime. But then you um, have these others, and, and they're... Um, it's interesting that, for example, that biology was not one of these. You would have thought that perhaps it would be, but biology, um, according to all the, um, for example, Uta Dijkman, who's um, a German um, biologist who's written a wonderful history of her own discipline during this period, um, was fairly uh, middle of the road and acquiescent. Um, but it was the uh, all the the positive. Um, uh, thrust within science to aid and abet the regime came from um, anthropology, from psychiatry, and um, from physics. Yeah. And we need to talk, look at some of those cases. We've got some commercials that are overdue at the moment, but then let's look at some career, particular careers or some whole drifts within those disciplines to see how they did the Nazi job how they Nazified, in fact. We return to conversation with John Cornwell, drawing from his new book, Hitler's Scientists, right after this. And directly back to John Cornwell, drawing from his important new book, Hitler's Scientists. And it's full of fascinating life stories, biographical glimpses of some men caught in this process. Who were some of the scientists that really stand out for you in the development of a scientific, it's really scientoid, uh, justification for their racial policies? Well, I mean, a great figure is, um, is uh, Hackel, who, um, um, I mean, very early was influenced by uh, Darwin. And uh, I think Darwin was um, actually quite horrified when he saw, you know, the extent mm -hmm. to which um, his um, theory um, was being distorted. But um, I think that, you know, the, the radical forms of social Darwinism you know, the idea that uh, you could um, uh, develop a theory of society which was based on um, survival of the f fittest 
actually comes out of um, Germany. And the, also this idea that um, the Darwinian mechanism um, could in fact be um, uh, employed as a theory of absolutely everything. It could explain every kind of human behavior and the existence of religion and everything else. Um, Strangely, we've yeah. got people in this latter day uh, who are doing much the same. Uh, they often call themselves evolutionary psychologists. <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, are you thinking of people like Dan Dennett, perhaps? Yeah. Who, um, yeah. Um, and and, and um, Darwin's great idea. Well, I, I certainly wouldn't put poor Dan Dennett on the um, same level as th these people. No, no, we're uh, put Richard Dawkins <laughs> there, but Dawkins uses Darwinian theory to explain everything in every possible direction. It, it's interesting that the great sort of split between um, the, 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 the biologists or the biological theorists, people like Stephen Rose is against um, Richard Dawkins, um, do find themselves um, talking politics um, pretty mm -hmm. quickly. And um, the um, and uh, so the accusations fly in this uh, Dar Darwin Wars, as some people have called it. Because there is a great myth that sustains Nazism, that is the central myth of Nazism, and it's the myth of the Aryan race, mm -hmm. and of the need to fend off uh, possible infections that diminish, biological infections, mm. that diminish racial purity, and to restore racial purity. And that refers, of course, to the Jews, but it refers to other peoples as well. Well, yes, um, I think probably the first writer to have biologized race, if we can put it in that way, mm -hmm. and that really is the defining point at which we um, go off in that direction, was Gobineau, a, a Frenchman. And um, But it, it, it's taken up by um, quite a long list of um, either um, German thinkers or people like Houston Chamberlain, who was a British man who fell in love with Germany and um, got involved um, um, uh, with, with, with even Hitler at some point, um, who uh, saw this, you know, actually as a biological factor, uh, as a genetic factor. But the anthropologists and some of the medical people and some of the psychologists of Germany fall in line and they provide a kind of a mythwork of pseudo-scientific theory to justify all of this, don't they? They, they, they certainly do, but I, it seems to me that there's um, a, an interesting paradox which occurs, one sees it happening actually after the First World War, um, within psychiatry, and um, that is to do with, um, uh, and, and many of these people in fact had, had been affected in the trenches, and that's why they were in mental institutions, where they made a distinction, the psychiatrists themselves, between um, those patients who um, had lives worth living and those whom they thought did not. And so you could do something for those who had lives worth living for and improving for. And um, that seems to be, I mean, in the view of many scholars, and particularly um, Michael Burley, that, that is a, an actual depa departure point um, so it comes. So psychiatry and anthropology, you know, are the key subjects rather than biology itself. And that leads to the great step before the Holocaust, and that is the extermination of non-Jewish Germans who are deemed by medical 
supervisors or others to be unfit. That's right, in their hundreds of thousands. And they and, set uh, up essentially extermination centers yes. at hospitals yes. where they gas these people. They're ex also experimenting with what's the most efficient way to kill these poor people of limited intelligence or of uh, gross physical deformity, but they do. But that, kill them, they do. That, that, that was the process which was expanded and taken over yeah. in exactly the and same way. And the notion way. there is the eugenic notion that we have to, you can't let these people breed because that will only produce more degeneration of, the, of our racial type. Therefore, we have to get them out of the gene pool. That's right. It, it's almost like a form of, um, in fact, the image of quarantine, yeah. um, what, what was used metaphorically, but um, you begin to see a continuity between um, the metaphor and the real. Um, and this program is running camps. by 1937-38. How does the German medical profession respond to it? Well, it, it's interesting that the medical profession um, uh, uh, had the largest proportion um, of actual Nazis, card-carrying Nazis, of any um, profession or discipline um, in Germany. And um, that um, really raises all kinds of questions about doctors. Um, what, what one factor, I think, which um, some historians um, uh, used to explain this, is that um, doctors had um, under the Weimar Republic, which had preceded Nazism, had dropped in respectability and pay and so forth. And that when the Nazis came in, um, the, they um, gave them an uplift in their remuneration and salaries and uh, um, recognition. And um, so uh, the, the, the um, you, and also, of course, they. Um, benefited enormously, the Germans who um, were not Jewish, they benefited enormously from the dismissal of the Jews. So there was a kind of an enthusiasm within the medical profession. The other great body of theory, cloaked as science, has to do with the right of a nation to seek its own destiny at the cost of other nations. Mm. And uh, I mentioned Haushofer before, you make a good deal of him in the book. Uh, a kind of science, sort of quasi-anthropological, quasi-political, uh, which is labeled geopolitics, and which really provides a rationale to do what Hitler, way back in Mein Kampf, said had to be done, namely to invade the East and clear that region uh, of its population so that the Germans can migrate and expand eastward. The Drang nach Osten. Yes. Um, well, Haushofer is an interesting figure, isn't he? Because um, he he was um, a general during the First World mm -hmm. War, and I think he was seeking explanations which were quasi-scientific for Germany's failure, and um, looking for something that was very reliable intellectually to um, put right, you know, um, the, these. Um, you know, terrible failures, and decided that what uh, Germany's leaders, leaders um, had lacked was a knowledge of geography, um, cross-fertilized with politics. Um, I'm not so sure that he saw the invasion of Russia and Japan as um, the the answer, and in fact, he 
before he died, uh, he claimed that, in fact, um, he'd always said that Russia and Japan and Germany would have made, you know, some kind of perfect match. But I think, nevertheless, the, you know, the, the concept of seeing um, um, the, the struggle with other nations and, and the right of, um, a, of a population which could be described geographically, having the right to overtake minorities uh, as if they were some kind the, of disease within your own yeah, body and politic. And the survival of or the dominance of the fittest. It is indeed a social mm. Darwinist notion. But to what degree? One, one profession we haven't talked about, it's not a scientific profession, it's an intellectual discipline, is philosophy. Mm. And one thinks instantly of Nietzsche uh, and yeah. his concept of the Superman, das mm. Übermensch. Mm. Uh, and one remembers that though he died in a in an insane asylum long before the Nazis came to power, but his sister yes. lived on into the Nazi years, and she was a great Nazi herself, and tr and tr brought Nietzschean theory to bear upon the problem, or tried to bring it to bear upon the problems and the potential advantages uh, that uh, that the Nazis were aware of. That's, that's right. There's been a book written just recently Only about recently. this. Is um, yeah. very very remarkable and interesting. My um, the other great figure, of course, is Heidegger. My, Martin Heidegger, who, um, as rector of his seminary, of his, not his seminary, his university, um, uh, greeted um, the Nazis with great enthusiasm. Of course, he did later um, uh, renege on this. Well, but, uh, he half reneged. Yes. And after he w he stayed loyal, he stayed there through the war, through the war years. And he was denazified, and for a while he was put out to pasture by the by the military government. Mm. But to his aid came a great philosophical contributor who had once been his student, and in fact, as we learn only later, had also been his young mistress, mm. namely Hada Arendt, mm. who was, by the way, when I first arrived at the University of Chicago, a colleague. Mm. in that she was spending part-time at the University of Chicago. We served on the committee together. I didn't know all of this stuff about her and Heidegger until it was revealed much later on. But um, the mention, mention of her raises the whole question of whether the, the, the key to the acquiescence was the banality of these groups or whether there was something else happening as well. What do you yeah. think? Well, I don't think it explains a character like... Um, Werner von Braun, because I think that the, there were um, figures like him who uh, expanded with the arrival of Nazism. They sort mm -hmm. of came into their own, and um, it energized them in an extraordinary way. And I don't feel, I mean, without, um, um, I mean, I, I think Hannah Arendt is, of course, right, but um, I think that uh, certainly historians are, are looking at uh, that phenomenon of the, the way in which uh, certain kinds of figures and scientists in particular were, were hugely energized and oh, yeah. enthused and developed by the various young, young men, perhaps a few young women as well, I don't know, built their careers in the service of the Nazi state, hmm. even built their intellectual or scientific careers in that service. Surely Werner von Braun was one of them. Hmm. We'll talk about him in a while. We've got some commercials coming shortly, uh, and then I do want to get to the scientific 
the role of scientists in the German war effort, where they succeeded and where they failed, and why they failed when they did. The great and crucial question there, and you address it, of course, in this book, is did they fail to develop the atom bomb because the leader of the whole effort, supposedly, namely uh, Heisenberg, was actually uh, trying to waylay it and to slow it, uh, or was there something about the way the Nazi state was organized and the way they related to uh, the challenge of developing a nuclear weapon, which uh, made them far less capable than all those German emigre scientists and yet others who are now on our side building that weapon? Uh, we'll address those in related matters. But first, the question of rocket science and Werner von Braun, mm. uh, after we pause to these words. And we return to John Cornwell and uh, drawing from his very uh, uh, intriguing, uh, in, inevitably engrossing new book, Hitler's Scientists, Science, War, and the Devil's Pact. Let us come to the young Werner von Braun. He was um, in his 20s when the Nazis came to power. Well, yes, he was still a student um, at a uh, technical college. Mm -hmm. Um, he came from a wealthy family, he was a Junker, um, and he was obsessed with rocketry um, because he wanted to get to the moon and beyond. That was his, um, um, his whole obsession. Um, he wasn't really a political figure, but he, was one, he said something after the war which I think explains in some respects the whole of his life. He said, um, um, after 1945, he said, I don't care whether I go with an Uncle Joe or an Uncle Sam, so long as he's a rich uncle. Um, in other words, he would go where, um, you know, to follow the money, which would, uh, would enable him to do what he wanted to do. But before he did that, he worked uh, diligently for the Nazis, and he, in fact, uh, led the team that developed the V-1 and V-2 rockets that bombed, that, that bombed you when you were a kid growing up. That's that's You're right. I, my very first memory of life. I was born in 1940, and um, uh, the very first memory I have was the sirens going for an air raid, and my father carrying me out of the house into the backyard, where all of us uh, in that part of London had a shelter built made of corrugated iron, um, dug into um, uh, the earth, and um, one of these. Um, Pulse jet um, um, flying bombs, as we called them, was on its way um, right over the house. And my father um, lifted me up to take a look at it because he knew that until while the engine was still going, it sounded rather like a motorbike with a broken exhaust, that um, it wasn't going to explode. But you had about 12 seconds after the engine cut out, mm -hmm. um, it would then go into a glide and. Uh, so this was a gift up. coming at you and others, a gift from Werner von Braun. That, <laughs> yeah, well, m much more his work was uh, another memory I have coming home from school and seeing the result of uh, what was called a V2, a proper mm -hmm. rocket, which um, came down through the stratosphere and um, had a larger payload of about a ton of explosive. And um, I saw the result of that, of a huge crater and um, and all the trees stripped of their bark for um, a great distance around and a pram up on the branches of one of these trees where uh, an unfortunate woman had been walking with her baby and had been 
um, blown up and other pedestrians. Mm. Um, and so, um, uh, and, and that's interesting because the I, I think that to write um, a big book on a subject of this kind, um, it's helpful to be um, impelled by uh, you know a personal memory and a personal feeling about it. And um, the you know for a child who is born during a war, you think that uh, the the war has always been and always will be. And of course, for my generation, it, it very much shaped our attitudes towards Germany and all things German and therefore German science. And Americans and Soviet leaders have their own attitudes towards Werner von Braun and his colleagues at Peenemunde. They wanted to get them to, to help develop similar weaponry for the U.S. on one side and the USSR on the other. And as you say, von Braun said, I don't care whether it's Uncle Sam or Uncle Joe, the reference for Joe yeah. Stalin, whoever pays me the most. And we got von Braun and many of his people, and they had a great deal to do with developing the rocket program that ultimately gave us certain kinds of intercontinental ballistic missiles and also gave us the rockets by which we go up into space. Yes, um, it's interesting, isn't it, that um, one of uh, the greatest philosophers of science and historians of science um, in this country during that period, Robert Merton, mm -hmm. um, who died um, uh, not so long ago, um, insisted that um, good science and technology did not come out of bad regimes. Um, now, it, it was extraordinarily ironic, wasn't it, that uh, um, although many people subscribed to that view, that the Germans couldn't possibly be all that good at science. But we, um, but we wanted to get but, them. But they, they, the, 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 we moved heaven and earth to pay them enough to get them over here. That, that, that's right. The, the Russians and the Americans and, and the British scoured Germany looking for everything that they could take away. So everybody was somewhat amoral in this business. The, sci the Nazi scientists were amoralists, obviously, but so were the political elites of the U.S. and the USSR. They didn't care what kind of murderers, what kind of murder these guys had lent their, uh, their, their skills to in the past, so long as they were murderers on our side. Um, well, I, th I think it reveals two things. That first of all, you know, um, a bad regime can produce um, good science um, or effective science. Effective technology, anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wouldn't fault uh, America for carrying off jet airplanes and rockets and von Braun and he. It was a team of about 150. But you know what bugs me on this? Yes. I was over here while you were over there, and I'm a little bit older than you, and I remember how much he. Werner von Braun became a celebrated cultural hero in this country. As a matter of fact, uh, and that served our national purposes as well, to make him into some kind of hero. That would increase the budgets you could get from Congress to build up this rocket technology. But as a matter of fact, I have, as a surprise for you and our listeners, a famous tune by the great uh, musical satirist Tom Lehrer, who was at the time a graduate student in mathematics at Harvard. And here is his song about Werner von Braun. And what is it that put America in the forefront of the nuclear nations? And what is it that will make it possible to spend 20 billion dollars of your money to put some clown on the moon? <laughs> well, it was good old American know-how, that's why. As provided by good old Americans like Dr. Werner von Braun. <laughs> Thank you. 
gather round while I sing you of Werner von Braun, a man whose allegiance is ruled by expedience. Call him a Nazi, he won't even frown. A Nazi schmatzi, says Werner von Braun. <laughs> Don't say that he's hypocritical. Say rather that he's apolitical. Once the rockets are up, who cares where they come down? That's not my department, says Werner von Braun. Some have harsh words for this man of renown, but some think our attitude should be one of gratitude, like the widows and cripples in old London town who owe their large pensions to Werner von Braun. You too may be a big hero once you've learned to count backwards to zero. In German or English, I know how to count down. And I'm learning Chinese, says Werner von Braun. Isn't that just perfect? It is just perfect. And we mustn't forget, of course, that Werner von Braun was involved in um, slave labor. Um, this is... Um, there's more recent evidence about this. Mm -hmm. He always... Uh, claimed that um, he was simply milking um, the German military um, in order to develop, you know, his beloved rocket science. Um, but um, he was certainly uh, guilty after the destruction of Piedmont in an RAF raid and they moved the um, tunnels in the Hartz Mountains to, um, and there was a slave labor camp there called Dora. Um, and um, it's quite clear that he, he both knew and um, accepted the use of slave labor in the production of um, V-2 rockets. A parallel scandal of even greater magnitude, that I, and I've never understood how this could have happened the way it did, was the case of Albert Speer, who was, among other things, Werner von Braun's boss, in that he ultimately was in charge of all German war production. And he was one of the defendants at Nuremberg, and he did indeed get sentenced to 20 years in prison, and he served that time, but when he got out, he became something of a hero. Mm. He did uh, a book about Hitler and about uh, the Nazi period, and of course, at the trial itself, he said, I, we were guilty. He was the only one who supposedly expressed any uh, ex uh, expatiation or ex expiatory um, uh, uh, remorse for what he had done. But he was in charge, among as the man in charge of all of uh, German war production, he was in charge of the uh, assignment of hundreds of thousands of slave laborers to the labor and to their early death. Yes, he, he, he's a fascinating case. And he was celebrated in the West until his death. That's, that's right. He, he had a, an enormous fascination for people on um, every side of every divide, I think. Yeah. You know, in fact, um, the woman yeah. we mentioned, I mentioned to you, we, uh, just while we Gita were off Sereni, the air, yes. Gita Sereni, Hungarian-born British journalist, uh, did a biographical book, yes. study of Speer, and uh, she acknowledges that she was sort of drawn to him and is ambivalent about him, but sees him as somehow a man who has really transformed himself. Yes, that's... And I think he... In, I think there were a number of figures rather like him. Heisenberg, the great um, um, physicist, was 
rather similar too. They they were essentially people who um, not only wanted their cake and be able to eat it, but also sure. succeeded in doing so as well. Well, now we must come to uh, Heisenberg and to the great race to develop the what we once called the atom bomb, the fission device, which came before the fusion device that is present nuclear weaponry. Uh, some commercials are due. We'll take care of those, and then let's look at the race to develop the atom bomb. Heisenberg on the one hand, Oppenheimer over here on the other, and the teams that worked with them. All of that to follow right after we pause for these words. And directly back to John Cornwell. We won't be getting to the phones until about 10.30 tonight, but we'll open the lines right now. If you are impelled to pose a question or offer a thought, do by all means give us a call right now. And if you don't mind waiting just a bit, the number 591-7200, 591-7200, the area code if you're calling long distance. If you are listening to us at a greater long distance over the Internet and would like to communicate via email. That, of course, is also readily available. The email address, extension720, as one word, at tribune.com. Extension720 at tribune, T-R-I-B-U-N-E, dot com, or by phone 591-7200. Let us come to the great race. Hmm. On both sides, it was conceived that a nuclear weapon would be possible. Um, that's right. In, in fact, the... Uh, patenting of an atom bomb was done by a man called Leo Szilard, who was one of the Jewish scientists who was dismissed um, from uh, Germany. And he came um, uh, to New York uh, initially. But um, he had, um, through reading H.G. Wells's uh, book, The War of the Worlds, had um, conceived this idea that um, in a suitable metal, uranium actually was the metal, um, you could start a chain reaction which would um, produce, you know, a very, very big bang, the largest explosion, you know, that, that was imaginable. And As the <coughs> atoms split. That's right. The energy would be released. Now, um, in fact, um, you didn't get fission um, in uranium until um, uh, 1938, late 1938, um, and it uh, was discovered uh, in Germany um, by a man called Otto Hahn, who had been assisted by um, Lisa Meitner, mm -hmm. a very great um, woman, German, uh, or Austrian, in fact, physicist. Uh, so uh, the situation is that in the run-up to the Second World War, uh, Germany appears to be well ahead. Um, you know, they, they have all the possibilities of um, going um, towards... Uh, uh, a massive chain reaction and a bomb. Now, <clears throat> in fact, um, the Americans, if anything, um, dragged their feet for several years. They were, um, uh, in some respects, behind the Germans. But uh, what happens in Germany is that uh, the uh, team which formed under um, Heisenberg um, and his colleagues, people like Weizsäcker and Paul Hartek uh, and so forth, working um, both in um, Berlin and Leipzig, um, seemed to go um, unbearably slow. Now, if I could leap forward a bit, the, the great nub of the debate, which has um, gone on ever since the end of the war to the present date, is whether 
um, Heisenberg <clears throat> knew how to make a bomb, an atom bomb, but deliberately hindered the progress of, of um, the research program um, in order to deprive Hitler of this uh, first great weapon of mass destruction. Now, if that was the case, you know, he would uh, surely be regarded as one of the great heroes of history. Did he directly make that claim after the war? That well, well, here, now, now we come to the other alternative, mm -hmm. um, uh, as you're saying, which is that um, the alternative to this is that he did not make, he did not know how to make a bomb. He didn't know how to do it. He wasn't capable of it, and nor was his team. Um, but that after 1945, um, he and his colleagues um, um, unjustifiably claimed moral superiority um, for having hindered the progress of that bomb, and therefore uh, he must be regarded as one of the great hypocrites of the 20th century. Um, and uh, if, if I may, if you want me to go forward and tell you how we resolve that Absolutely. question, what historians do now. At the end of the Second World War, 10 leading uh, German physicists and physical chemists were rounded up by the Americans and the British, and they were brought to uh, a grand country house outside Cambridge, um, where they were held under house arrest. Now, uh, the Americans, um, and particularly uh, General Grove, who was in charge of the great Los Alamos um, uh, atom bomb project, uh, were intrigued to know exactly how much they did know about making atom bombs, and they were intrigued to know what their attitude towards the Russians was going to be. You know, would they um, possibly go off into the Soviet Union and taking with them um, atomic and nuclear secrets. Work for Uncle Joe rather than for Uncle Sam. That, that, that's right. Um, now what they did, what their captors did, was to bug the whole of this country house. They bugged um, the dining rooms and the bedrooms and the bathrooms and they even bugged the trees outside in the garden where they would walk up and down and they taped all their conversations um, thousands of hours of conversations and transcribed them. And the, uh, these transcripts were held secret for more than 50 years. They've now been edited and released and published. We, we can read them. And um, historians are convinced, and I'm one of them, that these tape recordings uh, resolve uh, this great uh, debate, this conundrum. And um, two things are, are, need to be said. The first is that we actually hear the German scientists engaged in uh, agreeing to what they call a lessart, which in German means uh, aversion, aversion of the truth, namely that um, they, had agree they agreed among themselves that they would tell the world that they had um, diverted their research program towards um, energy and peaceful purposes. Um, and then we have a second uh, tape recording, um, which is of Heisenberg um, hazarding a guess. He gives a, a lecture or a seminar to his colleagues, telling them how he thought the bomb might have been made. And um, according to historian physicists like Jeremy Bernstein, who has edited these tapes in a, in a marvelous edition published in the year 2000, it's quite clear that he didn't have a clue how the bomb was made. Absolutely uh, none whatsoever. And so from this, we can see that Heisenberg 
um, was by no means the great hero that some people would like uh, to portray him as. The reason um, he didn't develop the bomb was that he couldn't. Yes. He didn't know how. That's right. But later on he claimed he knew how, <clears throat> but he had held off to frustrate the Nazis. Yes. Uh, there's a, what was that play? Copenhagen. Uh, Copenhagen, in which they imagine, well, they, uh, there was a real meeting during the war years between Heisenberg and Niels Bohr up in Norway, is that right? Um, uh, in, in Denmark, in Copenhagen. In Denmark, rather, yeah. And <clears throat> the, uh, it, it's a remarkable play because it, it seeks to look into the mind of, uh, and, and the soul of Heisenberg, uh, to judge, you know, why he came to Denmark during the war to meet this other great physicist who had erstwhile been his mentor, Niels Bohr. Both um, of them Nobel laureates at the time. Y yes, indeed. And um, the again, there have been various versions of that, um, you know, the reason for that meeting put forward. One was that Heisenberg was trying to get from Niels Bohr some more information about... Pick, pick his brains, as it were. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Um, others that he was trying to persuade him to come over onto the side of the Nazis. Um, uh, Heisenberg's own version of the truth is that he was trying to persuade uh, Niels Bohr to persuade the Americans and the British uh, to do as he had been doing, namely to soft-pedal the research to make sure that neither side uh, would, would have the bomb. Um, my, uh, Michael Frayn's play is problematic in that um, he borrows from Heisenberg's own um, uh, physics, the uncertainty principle in physics, the un a kind of uncertainty principle in, in history, um, so that, uh, or, or biography, in which um, he is encouraging us to think that really uh, these kinds of questions can never be resolved because you can never actually get to, you know, the final um, version of the way in which people um, think. So, among other things, it's a postmodernist Extremely postmodernist, yeah. yes. Uh, a sort of deeply relativistic view. Yeah. And um, for that reason, um, some people have been very unhappy with the play and have even accused, I mean, the historian Paul Lawrence has accused um, Michael Frayn of being um, in, in sympathy with um, um, Heisenberg's sort but of... But you're, you're quite clear in your own conclusion that Heisenberg would have done it if he could have done it. Um, well, that, that's more difficult to say because um, we, we now know that he couldn't have done. But I think that the worst that can be said of Heisenberg is that he was politically obtuse mm -hmm. um, and morally obtuse. I'd, we do know for, for a certainty that he was not a Nazi, he never joined the party. And um, he, he didn't sympathize with Hitler. What was his life after the war? How long did he live? Well, um, he lived to the age of 73 and died in the um, 1960s, late 1960s. He, um, like many of those figures, like Otto Hahn and um, Weizsäcker and von Lau, they returned to Germany and became very considerable figures in um, you know, the politics of West Germany mm -hmm. and the um, re-establishment of science. Now, meanwhile, on our side, uh, the major figures really uh, were German refugees, were, or European Jewish refugees from Nazism. Mm. You've mentioned uh, uh, at least one of them, uh, Leo Szilard, Einstein, of course, uh, 
uh, wrote, at Zillard's prompting, as I remember, the letter to Roosevelt informing him of the likelihood that such a bomb could be developed and that the Germans might well be working on it. But many of the other scientists were also uh, uh, emigres from Europe. It's as if Hitler had chased away most of the scientists who could have given him the nuclear weapon. Yes, there was um, a, a very remarkable book published um, three years ago called Hitler's Gift, which um, uh, claims exactly that, that he had... And the, the curious thing is, you know, Max Planck went to see Hitler um, in 1933 to plead with him to, you know, save German science by um, allowing um, these great Jewish scientists to stay. And um, Hitler said to Max Planck, you know, well, if we've got to do without science for a couple of decades, then so be it. I mean, you, just you, the... you do say in this book that Hitler had no understanding of science at all, even though, of course, he was hailed as in totalitarian nations, the primary leader would be as the greatest scientist of the all. Uh, the, the, that's right. And that there's a curious paradox within his attitudes towards science, and particularly in relation to nuclear physics. Um, he didn't uh, he, he, unlike Roosevelt and unlike Churchill, um, he never went to the experts. He never formed committees to inform him as to how, you know, what his attitude towards science and technology should be. He tended to get um, stories about science from um, underlings. I mean, for example, his photographer, who gave him all, his, um, all the information he had, which was turned out to be misinformation about nuclear physics, including the idea that once started, uh, a chain reaction might not stop, and it would uh, go and burn the entire atmosphere. And um, he came out with that marvelous um, statement, which um, is, is extraordinarily ironic, namely that he did not want to go down in history as the man who turned the world into a glowing star. Um, so, um, and that's interesting because we, in the extraordinarily complex story of the German atom bomb, we can't overlook the fact that Hitler himself um, had very little um, enthusiasm. I don't think he, he prevented it, but certainly he had very little enthusiasm for the bomb. But now tell me, do you recognize that. this quotation? It's by a nuclear physicist. The physicists have known sin, and this is a knowledge they cannot lose. Yes, that's Oppenheimer, isn't it? That's Oppenheimer. Uh, in a lecture at uh, MIT in 1947. Mm. And he speaks for many of those guys who were in the Manhattan Project, I think. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've read more than once that uh, somebody put together a petition urging Truman not to use the weapon uh, as we were coming towards the end of the war with Japan. Uh, and that was signed by many physicists, mm. but it probably never reached Truman. If it did, he ignored it. Yes. Well, there's a, a, a curious case in the Los Alamos um, group of scientists, which is that you know most of them, um, and I think quite rightly, uh, thought that it was moral to work on the bomb because they believed that um, Hitler was either abreast of them or was ahead of them. And so the only way to um, prevent Hitler using a bomb was to have one to threaten back with him. Now, when in December of 1944, 
um, the invading uh, Allied armies discovered that there was no German bomb. They were nowhere near even getting a reactor working. There was only one scientist and one alone who resigned, and that was a man called Joseph Rockblatt, who later founded the Pugwash um, uh, movement for but disarmament. But many, many of the others, um, including Zillard, whom we've mentioned before, founded uh, a journal which still exists and is still done from the campus of the University of Chicago, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, yes. which uh, has urged nuclear disarmament and has monitored uh, the disposal of nuclear weapons over all these more than 50 years. That's right. Szilard, um, I think, is one of the truly great figures of the mm -hmm. 20th century because he was the one who, on suspecting that Hitler had a nuclear program with Einstein, wrote that famous yeah. letter to Roosevelt. Uh, but, you know, in the uh, introductory paragraph from your book that I read at the beginning of the program, you say that the moral dilemmas and the moral choices available to scientists, you suggest, can be illumined and more fully understood if we look at the Nazi case. Yes. What do you derive from the study of the Nazi scientists that has bearing upon the present functioning of modern scientists, even in great democratic nations, like yours or like this one? Well, per perhaps if we've got time for the next break, I could tell you just a, as briefly as I can a, a story which illustrates two very important points. Please do, right after I pause for a moment to invite telephone calls. We'll be getting onto those calls in just a few minutes. And the number, of course, 591-7200. 591-7200. We look forward to your calls, but do please tell the story. Okay. Well, the story involves um, a man called Paul Hartek, who was a famous um, German um, physical chemist who had studied um, uh, what are called neutrons in Cambridge in 1932. Now, um, in 19, early 1939, after the discovery of fission, um, uh, scientists like Szilard and Enrico Fermi, who worked at Columbia, um, knew that the next step towards creating a chain reaction was the discovery of... Um, a secondary neutrons, it's called. We, we needn't go into the technical details of it. We'll just give that a label as the mm -hmm. next step in the great discovery towards a chain reaction and possibly a bomb. Now, there were only two uh, sets of um, researchers working on this problem. There was Enrico Fermi and Leo Szilard in Columbia University in New York, and there was Joliot Curie working in Paris. And Leo Szilard, knowing that the, the, the tremendous importance of this work, uh, pleaded with them not to publish their results, uh, to go ahead certainly to, to the discovery, but not to publish it. Um, Enrico Fermi reluctantly agreed, because as we were saying earlier in this program, you know, to publish and to be first to be published is the lifeblood of science. Uh, Joliot Curie um, uh, didn't give an answer. But in fact, he did find these secondary neutrons, and the moment he did it, he published a paper in Nature on the 18th of March, 1939. We're getting perilously close to the Second World War. Now, a man called Paul, Paul, this man called Paul Hartek, who was a, a physical chemist working in Germany, read the article in Nature. Um, he wasn't a Nazi, he had no interest in bombs, but he was lacking funding to do his science. 
And so he wrote to the German military and he said, um, can you give me some money because I think I can create a very big bang, you know, if we follow up this research which I've just read in Nature. Um, and out of that came, thus started, the German atomic bomb program. Now, there are, there are two things which um, we can take from this. First of all, the question, do you give um, dangerous knowledge to people that you do not trust? That's one question. Um, you know, which applies to us today as it did mm -hmm. under the Nazis. And the other question is, um, it is the extraordinary degree of dependence of scientists for money and for funding, and what they will do to get it. The, the blind eye they will turn to the moral aspects. After the war, Paul Hartek was asked, you know, why did he go to the German military and alert them to what could be done with this scientific discovery? And he said, well, because they could give me funding, which is rather, who was that famous robber who, when he was asked, you know, why do you rob banks? <laughs> Willie Sutton, because that's, that's where the money is. That's exactly. And that problem is huge today in science. You know, yeah. that um, has, scientists today spend 50 to 75% of their time writing grant applications, you know, which are like uh, movie scripts um, in order to get the money they want. And of course, those grant applications are twisted and, you know, serve the needs of people who are and not these interested days in science. It's a little, even a little bit more complicated with that. The scientists are at universities, and their universities push them into going after big research money because half of that money goes directly into the university's coffers. And universities live on their portion of the swag that scientists get from outfits like the National Science Foundation in this country. Absolutely. We must pause. Overdue commercials, then directly to the phones and to the email. The phone number 591-7200, and a number of lines are available. <clears throat> if you want to pose a comment or uh, a question, do by all means give us a call quickly, 591-7200. And if you'd rather reach us via email, the email address, extension 720 at tribune.com. And we will go directly to the phones for your questions to John Cornwell author of the new book, which has been the base for our discussion tonight, Hitler's Scientists, Science, War, and the Devil's Pact. That is, by the way, published by Viking. It's utterly readable and, uh, and completely engrossing and is available wherever they sell real books. 591-7200 is the number. You are on the air. Good evening. Yes, uh, I'd like to know uh, what your guest thinks... Uh, how long would it take the Russians to develop their atomic bomb uh, without having stolen many of our secrets or even some new spies that are were uh, enlisted in uh, new books that have come out recently? Uh, so I'd like to know, you know, they exploded their bomb in 49. So how long do you think it would have taken them without the United States uh, technology? Um, well, <clears throat> it's a good question. Uh, I don't think that, um, uh, as Hitler thought, that Russian scientists were useless and could do nothing by themselves. That was one of his great prejudices, you know. Um, uh, That's because they were uh, they were uh, part of the under race. They were. They were uh, in a Sklatenrasse. They were a, a race of slaves. That's right. Yes, that was his view. Um, I, I would guess that they would have got their 
um, eventually because they did have um, very good scientists. And of course, you know, there's another Im imponderable fact, which was to do with the scientists who uh, went into G to the Soviet Union from Germany or were taken in. Uh, it's interesting that the first German scientist, a man called Hutemans, who had, uh, who, who was the first German scientist onto the plutonium route to the bomb, in fact had been working in the Soviet Union up till um, 1941, and in fact was um, re released after the um, special pact between Stalin and Hitler back into Germany. What did their, uh, they got some missile scientists or some rocket scientists as well right after the war. Uh, how much did they contribute to the development of the Russian ICBM? Well, th th that's an interesting point because the uh, German scientists who went over there complained, um, and, and in fact were kept there virtually as prisoners for anything up to seven years. Um, they were kept on an island uh, in, in virtual imprisonment. Um, uh, many of those claimed that um, the Russians were working, Russian scientists were working in parallel and were in fact well ahead of them. They complained that uh, they were not given proper experimental um, material and had to work with pencil and paper. Um, so there is some, I, I, I think that there's an area of doubt whether um, the Russians weren't skilled enough to mm -hmm. actually get there um, themselves. Uh, I, certainly they took a lot of the rocket um, basic rocket science, but it was the guidance systems which were the, the, the really difficult um, aspect of technology by this stage. When it comes to um, Western scientists who, um, or Western technologists, who um, in fact did some espionage service for the Soviet Union and got some portions of our knowledge of uh, nuclear technology over to them. People like Klaus, yes. You have, yeah, to, you have yeah. to go to Britain as well as to this country. Yes. Uh, the Rosenbergs here and one or two others, and uh, Klaus Fuchs yes. uh, in Britain. So yeah. he was originally a German refugee, wasn't he? He, w he was, and um, I think that, uh, I think it's difficult to, you know, if we could put ourselves back to that period of time and the way in which scientists were thinking, there was a genuine belief that the way to uh, to establish peace between nations was to share this knowledge um, and pe some very respectable people including Einstein and um, Leo Szilard believed that it could only cause um, uh, deeper distrust and further wars um, if Britain and America didn't share with the Soviet Union right from the very outset and this isn't knowledge. There, isn't there some ambiguity as to what Oppenheimer uh, wanted to do or did do in the years directly after the war? Oh yes, and the great conflict with um, Edward Teller and mm -hmm. um, the um, uh, uh, the battle between them and, and eventually Oppenheimer uh, being disgraced and having his special status uh, taken away. His security uh, clearance taken that, away. That, that's right. And I, that was the man who developed who ran the Manhattan Project that developed the nuclear bomb. Yes, it's a, an extraordinary story, isn't it? Um, but I think that um, it, it, it's it's quite clear that Oppenheimer um, 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 completely changed his attitudes after um, the war and after he was thrown out. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that um, he would have uh, much preferred, a, 
uh, either the elimination of the weapon or the or the sharing of the technology. We go to another caller. Good evening. You're on the air. Uh, I know this is maybe a different topic, but I was wondering if your guest has heard of the book called American Access, which deals with Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh not just sympathizing with Hitler, but actively monetarily funding the Nazi movement. And I got to a program rather late, but I was wondering if you could uh, talk about uh, Marconi and Mussolini for a little bit. Marconi and Mussolini. Is there a Marconi-Mussolini connection? I don't know about that. Oh, well, uh, yes, indeed. Marconi I mean, wasn't Italian, to be sure. Yes, but. and um, he um, did all that sort of very, uh, for its day, advanced radio technology, um, which was, you know, the pride of the uh, Mussolini period. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I'm afraid I, I have to tell the caller that I can't shed any light uh, whatsoever on the relationship between Henry Ford and the Nazis. And um, well, Lindbergh, uh, about whom he also asked, was of course rather impressed by Nazi air power and was fated by the Nazis, given a medal, I think, and uh, was uh, uh, sort of a, a a prize possession or prize trophy for Hermann Goering when Goering was out of the German Air Force. Mm -hmm. And Lindbergh led the so-called America First movement, which after the war had begun and uh, Britain and France were in it, insisted that America must stay clear of that war and he was an active America firster until December 8th, 1941. Mm. Yep. Uh, we have a last round of commercials to take care of. There's room on the board now if you've been trying to reach us and not getting through, do try again. We've cleared a number of lines. 5917200. And we return to John Cornwell and back to the phones. 591 7200 is the number. You are the next caller. Good evening. Hello, Doctor and Mr. Cornwall. I was just wondering why the Nazis planned to execute uh, Vorna von Braun and was saved by his boss who was running the rocket program at that time in uh, Nazi Germany. Well, uh, he was arrested by Himmler and his gang because Himmler um, had designs on taking over the rocket program and um, he. Uh, asked von Braun whether he would he if he could have his support and von Braun um, um, said that um, um, he wouldn't that he was quite satisfied with his boss and it's had an interesting repercussion um, ever since the war in the whole history and, and biography of Werner von Braun because he could then say to the world that um, far from him being a Nazi he'd actually been under arrest from an in danger of his life from Himmler, and so how could he possibly be considered to be a Nazi sympathizer? Sounds a little bit like Heisenberg copying a plea. Yes, yes indeed. And um, in fact a similar thing happened with him too, because he was denounced by mm. uh, the Nazi physicists. And um, But curiously he went to Himmler and um, got Hitler, Himmler's support um, to um, uh, get these uh, guys off his back. We are uh, coming to the end of the available time. We, we addressed earlier a question, but we've by no means resolved it, about the moral dimensions of the scientific role. Um, I think that uh, shows up even in some of the lesser 
sciences, some of the sloppier disciplines, like my own psychology. Uh, in fact, uh, for years, uh, what I did as a social psychologist was research on what's known as the attitude change process, persuasion. Uh, and uh, some of the stuff that people who've worked that field have done, I fear even some of my own research findings, have indeed been uh, seriously examined and sometimes directly applied in persuasion work, whether by governments or even uh, more disturbing in some ways, advertisers. Yes, indeed. Uh, and surely the, the, the root of this problem is the extraordinary dependence of um, researchers on um, the paymasters of science. Mm -hmm. um, it, it reminds me of a wonderful essay written by George Orwell 50 years ago about um, integrity in journalism and in publishing and, um, and broadcasting, very particularly. And uh, what he says in this essay is that it is not so much um, uh, broadcasters and journalists telling lies, which they know they shouldn't do, or um, uh, plagiarizing and so forth, um, you know, these personal moral uh, issues, but it is the concentration of the media into fewer and fewer hands so that uh, the media doesn't have the pluralism which provides all the checks and balances which creates integrity. And I think a similar kind of um, issue um, relating to integrity um, operates in science as well. That um, because science needs um, freedom for its creativity, it needs serendipity, namely, you know, the ability to um, discover things by chance, it needs freedom, um, that uh, the more science uh, becomes uh, a victim of the stranglehold of uh, its great paymasters, namely governments, the military, the, the big pharmaceutical companies, um, what you find is the, the, the undermining of the integrity of scientists who are obliged to um, promise, issue promisey, prom promissory notes in the form of um, grant proposals um, in order to uh, uh, give these people what um, pleases them. Um, in other words, scientists uh, surrender their own freedom. And... Um, that is a is a deeply tragic and disturbing thing. You're a deeply involved Catholic layman. Indeed, you had some seminary training, I think, earlier yes. in your life, didn't you? Mm. Um, the church itself, you, we've mentioned government, we've mentioned industry, we've mentioned advertising and so on, uh, as holding scientists in some sort of control. But the church, remember, uh, put very strong strictures on the work of many important scientists. Just think of Galileo Galilei on his knees, uh, yes. essentially repenting of his doctrines. Yes, that's right. Um, and um, I think that uh, science has, you know, ever since the beginnings of science, we've, we've found uh, this problem. I, the big question, uh, I know we're coming up to the end of the program, is what can scientists do about it? And uh, I think the big difference between science as it was conducted um, back in the 30s and 40s and, and today is that um, scientists have the freedom of the internet and the media in order to whistleblow and form 
um, communities of non-governmental pressure groups to, um, um, to, to, to create you know, a different kind of climate. I, I think of that remarkable man, Jeffrey Weigand, you know, who worked for the tobacco company, who had tremendous pressure on mm -hmm. him. They were going to take away his uh, family's... Uh, yes. And um, he became one of the great whistleblowers through the use of the media. Well, there's the old Quaker injunction, which I think uh, should be always kept in mind, though it may not always be possible to follow it, namely, speak truth to power. And scientists ought to be able to... Social scientists, certainly ought to take that very seriously. We have been talking tonight with John Cornwell, and it's been a great pleasure for me, John, to have you here once again. The new book that we've been drawing from is titled Hitler's Scientists, Science, War, and the Devil's Pact, and it is just published by Viking. We will be back again tomorrow for a full two-hour program, and it will be our annual visit with some of the people at the Lincoln Park Zoo. Indeed, one of them has just done a history of the Lincoln Park Zoo. That's tomorrow at 9. Until then, a cordial good night to all.